0: When I was in seventh grade, I had nothing but disdain for the thought of going to church. And I will just say, um, before, I, before I go off on the church in which I was raised, um, inside that building, there were some wonderful, godly Uh, loving people i I do not disparage any of them i'm my family is still friends with many of them have no bad things to say about the people inside but this was one of those churches where um, a, a great deal had been spent on the appearance of the church and I, I grew up in Houston, so this was you'll, this is kind of the comical part. But the one day of year of the year where we had winter, if if that fell on a Sunday, then our church was this parade of fur coats. This was back when you could wear fur in public, and people wouldn't throw ink on it or whatever, you know. Um, but I just remember thinking as a child, what in the world does this fashion show have to do with the love of Jesus I don't get it there seems to be a complete disconnect between what everyone here is saying church is all about and what I read in here about the church. And so I, uh, I was a rather rebellious person at that stage in my life. And uh, I, I, I fought with my mother uh, vehemently over the whole thought of going to church. And uh, I remember in seventh grade, she made me go through the communicants class. Some of you had to do this, I'm sure, um, in uh, one denomination or another. And I completed the class, and for some reason, uh, the pastor approved me to become a member of the church. I have no idea why. I had no business being a member of that church. Um, well, I'll just say my heart was not in it. I'll put it that way. But that didn't seem to matter to them. And uh, so my mom decided the way to play the card was, okay, now you're a member of the church. You decide whether you want to go to church or not. It's between you and God. Um, and I went, see ya. <laughs> all right. Um, all that to say, if you had told me when I was in seventh grade at that point in my life that I would one day be in charge of getting people to come to church as the pastor I would have just thought you were crazy I yeah would not have responded well to that prophecy being spoken over me if you will and so Here we sit some decades later. Why on earth would I expect a seventh grade boy or anyone else to come to church? What has changed? Why am I here? why are you here? What are we doing as God's family? What is the, what is the reason that God has brought us together? And as, as Paul speaks into the, the division in this church that he started, he begins to remind all of us as to why, as to what's going on, who's really at work, and what it's all about. And so I want to sort of enter into this passage with you as we sort of ask those questions. Why are we here? What are we doing? What does God want for us as His church? And Paul really begins with... The call to partner with God in His work, to partner with God in what He is doing, in the growth of His church. Um, Let me say this: I'm I'm, I'm stealing a page out of a a book of a pastor outside. He he serves outside of Chicago. His name is Bill Heibels. Fairly. controversial guy in some respects, but um, mainly because his church is so big. Bill Hybels' church is like 15,000 people or something ridiculous like that. And uh, But I'm grateful to Mr. Hybels for one very simple observation. As the church, you are The only institution on earth that God has vested with his authority, with his grace, and with the mission of his gospel. And so Bill Hybels puts it this way. He says, you are the hope of the world. Because you carry with you from this place the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are the place where God has deposited his word to not just sit here and fester, but to take root in our souls and go out through us into the world. And so we are truly called to partner with God in the growing of his church, in the building of his church. We're called to labor toward what God is doing. Well, what is he doing? Um, Paul talks about these two groups of people within the church in Corinth. Um, and And he says, well, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? These are only servants through whom you have come to believe. So this idea of faith being passed from one person to another is sort of a beginning point in what we're talking about. What God is doing is extending His gift of faith to the world from person to person to person. And as we are called to labor toward that with God, we see in this passage that there are many servants but one Lord. Um, let me try to clarify part of what Paul is saying. As he talks about faith, or you, when you came to believe, whom you came to believe, through whom people, servants through whom you came to believe, um, he says, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it. This is the seed of faith that Paul is talking about that through Paul, God's servant, the word of God came to Corinth. And then Paul was called elsewhere, and Apollos took up the work in Corinth. And so one planted this seed of faith. Another cultivated or watered this seed of faith. And in this context... Paul is saying it doesn't matter whether you came to faith while Paul was there or if you came to faith while Apollos was there. There's one Lord over all of us. The servants are just pointing to someone larger than themselves. And so as we labor toward what God is doing, we realize that there are many servants and one Lord That faith comes from God. And that faith comes through people. Through you. This is the way God has chosen to do His work. That He's the author and we are the vehicle, if you will. There are many servants and one Lord, there are many laborers, and one purpose. And that purpose, as we said to the kids, is very simple. It's the glory of God. That everything we do be unified under that banner. That I'm not here for me. I'm not here, uh, to feed my pride. You're not here, uh, to get business contacts. You're here to contribute with me, with all of us, toward the glory of God. That's the purpose that unites our labor in the church as we partner with God in doing His work. We labor toward what God is doing and we build upon what Christ has done. Um, and here again, we see this repetition of idea that there are many messengers but one message. And Paul says, look, you know, I laid a foundation. But it was the foundation that was laid for me in Christ. And so nobody can come in and switch the foundation out from underneath God's building. It's then something else. So we're all... Building on the same cornerstone, if you will. There are many messengers, but one message. Many builders, but one foundation. This idea that God desires all of us to come together in His name and share a unified calling, a unified purpose uh, that our work might build his kingdom on earth. Um, It it is important, and Paul comes back upon this in the next verse. um, I suppose it's in uh, verse 10 where he folds in this idea. But that as we partner in the work of God, that we also reflect God's grace so here's the idea that what Christ has shown to us is that which we are to show to the world Um, Paul goes into this discussion uh, in verse 12 I'll put it this way that our calling is to multiply that which will last and Paul talks about building with, uh, he uses six terms there, gold, silver, and costly stones, and then wood, hay, or straw. And you see three items that represent the imperishable, and three items that represent the perishable. Elsewhere, in this same book of the Bible, Paul uses these Or coins these famous words. Um, Well, I'll read them to you because when I try to quote them off the top of my head, it doesn't always come off right. But I'm going to uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Todd! (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. And now, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And you see here God talking about, or Paul talking about, what endures. Those things with which we build, which shall last. Which will never be taken away. And so, in a very direct sense, this gold, silver, and precious stones represent faith, hope, and love. The three things that abide, that endure, that last. And so, your calling and my calling as the church of God is to be a people of faith, a people of hope, People who love, that the world might see more of who Christ is through us. And as we are called to multiply that which will last, so also we are called to do away with that which destroys. Paul talks conversely about those things that will be consumed by the fire. He's speaking of the fire of God's judgment. but those things which will not last, if you will. And what would be the opposite of Christ's love? In relation to myself, it's pretty clear. It's my selfishness. It's my quest to satisfy myself, to um, manage myself, control my own whatever, um, you name it. That selfishness stands as the opposite of what we are called to in demonstrating Christ's love to the world. And then in verse 15, Paul says an interesting thing. He's talking about that which is consumed by the fire. He says, if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Paul is recognizing a very basic human reality. I'm going to call it self-protection. So we have, we have selfishness or self-interest, and then we have, on the, uh, along with that, self-protection. Um, we all have our ways of protecting ourselves. It's... Uh, part of how we operate. Most self-protection is driven by fear. If if you've been hurt in one particular way in your life, you're going to develop a pattern for protecting yourself against that kind of hurt happening again. You follow me? And God is saying that these, these patterns, these ways in which we behave and conduct ourselves that are born out of self-protection or born out of fear, we're called to lay those down at His feet. To trust Him. To believe that... How do I want to say this? I'll put it this way. We're called to emulate Christ. I don't see any glimpse of self-protection in Christ's approach to the cross. He doesn't play games. He doesn't take the easy way out. He doesn't, what do you call it, Mike, punch out? You have to pull like a lever to punch out or something? Bail out. Bail out. Um, He faces the fear and exposes Himself to everything that we might fear. To betrayal, uh, to death, to suffering. All the things we would love to avoid, Christ walks straight into. And we are left with this call to lay down our fears and to remember that God's got our back. He is with us and He will never leave us nor forsake us. Paul reminds us that even if we completely blow it as God's followers, if we stumble over every aspect of what it means to be a Christian, if we are covered by the blood of Christ, if Jesus willfully died for the forgiveness of your sins, there's nothing you can do to change that fact. You're in. You are secure. You're in His hands. Um, But the calling remains. And that That's really where freedom in Christ exists. Think about it this way. If God said to us in his word, that was interesting. We've been trying to figure out this pop for like months. That was very interesting. Okay. If God said to us in his word, watch yourself. Get it right or I'm kicking you out. Okay? Think about how differently we would live the Christian life. Because now we're living out of a motive for what? Self-protection. And everything we do as Christians is self-motivated. Here, God says, let me just take the pressure off. Even if you are completely inept at living out Christianity, I've got you covered. You're covered by the blood of my Son. Um, Now, you're free. You're free to blow it. You're free to get it right. You're free to glorify Him however the Spirit leads. And so, God calls us into the freedom of His grace. To reflect that grace to the world. And so, as we partner with God in His work and as we reflect His grace, we are also called to enjoy God's glory. You've heard me say this before, I'm sure, in one way or another, but I, I don't think of myself as a saint. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Kathy. I got an amen. I have a hard time seeing myself as holy, as wearing the righteousness of Christ. Listen to what God says about you in His Word. First, as we talk about this idea of enjoying God's glory, let's look through the lens of what God has offered to you. Of course, as Paul alludes to in verse 11, the sacrifice of Christ made for you. Um, these two ideas that are united, or that are, that are where this idea of sacrifice comes from is obvious in this passage that you are the temple of god you are his building the temple was built as the place where the sacrifices occurred so the sacrifice of christ came into your heart into our hearts as god's people to atone to forgive to pour out grace and light and love and hope and So we are called to enjoy that reality that God has laid down the sacrifice for our forgiveness. And in addition to the sacrifice of Christ, He gives us the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And this passage talks about that. The other function of the temple in in the Old Testament was the holy of holies, the seat of of God called the Ark of the Covenant. And it, it represented God's presence in the center of the life of his people. And so if you read how the Israelites proceeded through the desert, there were tribes before, tribes on either side, and tribes behind the central place of the Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of God. That he wants to be, and he is, dwelling in In the very heart of his people. And so you're called into this truth that you're forgiven and that his presence is alive in your reality. And so we're called to enjoy his glory through what he has offered to us and through how God has transformed us. So here's here's the part that I have the hardest time with. Who am I? Am I a selfish, self-interested, sinful jerk? Is that what defines who I am? Or does God have something else to say about who I am in Christ? I want to just take you through some of the things that God calls us in this passage. You, verse 9, are God's fellow workers, that is, to multiply His grace in the world, the gift of His faith. You are God's field to be cultivated for the nourishment of your fellow man. You are God's building to establish God's presence on this earth. You are the church in that respect. It's not concrete and steel. It's flesh and blood and soul and heart. So, you're God's fellow workers. You are His field, His building. You are God's temple to magnify His glory. And you are God's dwelling place on this earth. Interesting, um, just one interesting little point. When God talks about, he says in this, in this uh, verse, in, I think it's in 16, um, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? That's actually a plural you. In other words, God's Spirit lives in all of you. So there's the way in which the Spirit indwells the individual heart of a person, of a Christian. In addition to that, there's the way in which the Spirit indwells, let's say, the the assembled body of His people. That's why we gather, or one of the reasons we gather in His name. Um, so, how long have we been at this, Kath? About 12 years? Something like that? Twelve and a half? Um, it would have been a lot easier for Kathy and I to just, you know, not move to San Antonio and try to start a church and just live out our faith with the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us individually. Fewer headaches, you think, Kath? No? You're not helping me here. It would have been easier. But God says that's not why you're here. To sequester yourself and just enjoy the benefits of being my child alone, I want you together. Even with the tension, the conflict, uh, the disagreement, the heartache, what have you. I want you called together in my name. Because not only will there be heartache and disappointment and conflict, but there will also be at times harmony and unity and the power of God's people assembled in His name. He wants us together because that better reflects who He is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are God's temple, His dwelling place. You are God's sacred possession. I love how Paul sort of brings that full circle at the end of the passage Um, I'll put it this way, God will prevail. He will persevere in His church, in your life, in this world. He will protect His own. Now, the problem with God is He's not afraid of anything. Remember that freedom we talked about and the fearless manner in which Christ walked to the cross. God's not afraid to allow us to pass through suffering, to experience conflict, or whatever. He's not afraid. But He says, I've called you together to reflect who I am. And you are my sacred possession. I will carry you through. And so, we're reminded that God has transformed us from sinful, self-interested people into a people who are His fellow workers, His field, His building, His temple, His dwelling place, His sacred possession, all for the purpose of giving Him glory. The one purpose toward which we all labor in His kingdom. Not because we're afraid of losing our place, but because we've been freed to enjoy His love forever. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the way in which You shape us through Your Word. Where You chisel away all that stands between us, and the full reflection of Your grace. Lord, that we might better reflect Your light in this dark and hurting world. That You would inhabit us by Your Holy Spirit as Your people and shine Your light through us as Your church. Lord, that You would continue to grow the seeds of faith that are planted in this place for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom and your name, amen.